I'd like you to uh, think about the people around you and your network of acquaintances, um, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, that whole web of relationships. And I'd like you to zero in on just a few of those faces. Um, I'd like you to zero on the people that you would have to say in all honesty, they are the furthest from God. By their behaviors, by their language, by their views they've expressed, their values, whatever those might be, you'd have to put them at the furthest fringes as far as being far from God. Now, my suspicion would be that as you picture them and you have some faces in front of you, it would be hard for you to also picture, as as Paul was talking about the rest of our story, probably would be hard for you to picture them sitting beside you in church. Your first reaction might be, no way. That will never happen. You might have some other people in those webs of relationships that are closer to God that you might say, well, now I could picture them beside me in church. I I could picture them up front giving a a communion meditation. But, But... This guy, this gal, there is no way. I think we all have those kinds of people, and we all have those kinds of conclusions where we would say they are so far from God, there's no way. What I want you to realize is that those kinds of people are sitting around you right now. And they're here. And they're active in church. They have a relationship with God. That impossibility actually happened. There's folks around you today, because I know there's stories, who for a time hated God. Hated Christians, hated the church. Wanted nothing to do. They were so far from God, maybe they were even involved in other religions, even in cults and Satanism. Had you asked them, they would have said, there is no way. But something happened. God got through to them, and the impossible happened. Just as George told the story, even if it was using a piece of paper, I tore out of the Bible and used a roll of cigarette. Somehow the impossible happened. Well, that was a lesson that Jonah didn't understand. I think we could say that Jonah felt like his trip to Nineveh to preach a revival was a waste of time. Uh, It doesn't say that in the book of Jonah, but I'm pretty confident had we been able to interview Jonah, he would have said, yeah, this is a waste of time, but God's making me do it, so I'm going to do it. And fortunately, God just gave me a limit of how long I have to do this waste of time, and so I'm going to do this waste of time for as long as God required it, and then I get to go home. And he won't put me in a fish again. And I think that's all that was going on with Jonah. So he went. And nobody, I think, was more surprised at what happened than Jonah. I think he was the biggest shock person in the whole crowd. If you want to turn over with me to Jonah 3, this is sort of like Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. I want to read the first ten verses. Well, actually, it's the whole chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days just to go through it. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. Let's just stop there for a second. I just think that's interesting that detail was given to us. Jonah's like, well, okay, I can't stay on the outside. He said, I got to go. So I'm going to go a third of the way in. That's, maybe that's enough. A third of the way in. And the other thing I thought about is, as a, we don't know how he was preaching, but was he just sort of, okay, you need to turn. Okay, you need to turn. You know, just sort of half-hearted. How was he doing it? Or was he just screaming at the top of his lungs? We, we know his message. Forty days more and Nineveh will be overthrown, destroyed, cast down. That's the concept. The Ninevites believed God. Here's the miracle. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Stop for a second. We're going to read the rest of the chapter. I just think, gosh, what was that like? Had I been Jonah, I would have been convinced these people are either going to just walk away and I'm going to be standing on a preach corner street corner here preaching and we've all seen guys do that and nobody's listening and i mean it is like you talk about ants scattering somebody holds up their bible and starts preaching on a street corner and it's like they're gone and i think that's what jonah expected or they were going to start throwing rocks at him i think he figured it was going to be one of those things and and what happened was the exact thing jonah thought there is no way it's like they stayed And you think, now, was Jonah having a conversation in his head? Uh, They're not running away. They're actually, that guy just went and got some friends, and they're coming back. They're listening. What is going on here? I think part of him had to say, there's no way. There's no way. You know, pinch myself, wake me up. Well, it gets even bigger. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, that was sort of mourning clothes, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. I think the most surprised guy in Nineveh was Jonah. God did the impossible. Nineveh listened to Jonah's message. They admitted they were wrong. They repented. If you're not, a lot of you are familiar with that word, but it's so important I want everybody to be familiar with it. It's a, it's a church word. We throw it around all the time. But its meaning is so basic and so important. It is a U-turn. 
the, the basic concept of the original word is I make a U-turn. I'm heading in this direction, and I say, this is the wrong direction. i got to go this way. And I make whatever changes I need to make to go that way and to stop going that way. It's a term we all need to wrestle with because it is so basic for God to do anything in our lives. We change direction. And that's exactly what Nineveh did, even up to the king, who proclaims a national fast and a national day of prayer so that maybe God won't destroy them. Nobody expected that. How did it happen? Obviously, God did it. I think sometimes we feel like Jonah. And that's part of why I think it is so important to see chapter 3. Because we feel like we're going to our Nineveh, and we are about as optimistic as Jonah probably was. I hope you followed through on my request when we began this series to identify your Nineveh. That one place, that one situation where God might ask you to go. Outside of our Christian circles, outside of serving in the church, but where we might be able to go, whether it's my ball team, the buddies I fish with, the co-workers, a group in the neighborhood, whoever that might be for you, I think whatever that Nineveh is for you, a lot of us feel just like Jonah. Man, there's no way. Only God could pull it off. It is impossible. And I understand why we feel that way, but God does the impossible. And that's what I want us to understand today. That's part of why I wanted George, who'd asked weeks ago to talk about the Gideons. I said, George, there's one Sunday I want you to talk. Because the Gideons are built on impossible stories. You heard a couple. Nobody reads the Bible in a hotel room. Nobody. But a guy did and his life was changed. Obviously, nobody reads their cigarette wrapper. But a guy did, and his life was changed. The Gideons are full of stories of impossible things happening. And that's what it was for Jonah in Nineveh. And what I want us to see today is we serve the same God. And whatever impossibility you feel you're facing in your Nineveh, where God would want you to go for him it's not impossible. I tried to f- wrestle with what, what, what makes us feel so unable, unworthy. We can't do it. God can't use us. And I identified a couple things, and I want to talk about them briefly. The first thing is I think a lot of us feel inadequate. I, I don't think God can use me because I know me. And he, and he would never pick me. Because I'm not the right one. I can't do it. There's no way I could introduce a co-worker to Jesus. I, I wouldn't know what to say. I don't even know how to bring up a spiritual discussion with my friends. I can talk about the weather. I can talk about the Vikings or the new stadium or whatever else. I can talk about taxes. I can talk about all kinds of things. But God? Are you crazy? 
If I brought up Jesus out ice fishing, are you crazy? There's no way. We're all taking a break at work, sitting around. Hey, how are you doing with Jesus? Silence. And the room empties. So we feel that inadequacy. And if I did bring it up, I'd say the wrong thing. We, we feel that way. Whatever I'd say, I'd put my foot in my mouth. Or if anybody even spoke back, this is, I think, one of the number one fears, they're going to ask me a question for which I don't have an answer. And then they'd know I'm an idiot. And so I'm just not going to go there. All of those kinds of things makes us feel inadequate. Now, here is the really good news why you paid big bucks for this sermon. If you feel inadequate today, that's right where God wants you. He doesn't want you anywhere else. If you felt adequate, God said, I can't use you. I'm not not making this up. God says the exact opposite. He says, I need you feeling inadequate because that's who I can use. I want to read from God's Word translation. So I put it on the screen. I just like the way it says it. Paul is talking to all the, the Christians in Corinth. And here's what he says. Brothers and sisters, consider what you were when God called you to be Christians. Not many of you were wise from a human point of view. You were not in powerful positions or in the upper social classes. But God chose what the world considers nonsense to put wise people to shame. God chose what the world considers weak to put what is strong to shame. God chose what the world considers ordinary and what it even despises, what it considers to be nothing, in order to destroy what it considers to be something. I thought they should have said what it considers to be all that. As a result, no one can brag in God's presence. You are partners with Christ Jesus because of God. Jesus has become our wisdom sent from God, our righteousness, our holiness, our ransom from sin. As Scripture says, whoever brags must brag about what the Lord has done. So if we feel inadequate, if we don't have what it takes, you're the exact candidate God's looking for. We need to see that and realize that. Because that's who God uses. He doesn't want you to rely on yourself. If you did, then any glory that would happen, it would come to you. If you did a perfect job, had all the answers, people would be impressed with you, not with God. Paul was very gifted, but he had learned it wasn't in his abilities that everything hinged. It wasn't what he could do. In fact, he had learned that when he was the very weakest, when he was blowing it, when he couldn't do it, when he didn't have the answers, that was when in reality he was the very strongest. His testimony is in 2 Corinthians 12. This is what he had learned 
from trying to do it himself and trying to count on God. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, this is God speaking, my power is perfected in weakness. I want to stop there for just a second. That, that word perfect is so important in this, in this uh, paragraph. It is the concept of my power is allowed to fully show itself. You get to see 110% of my power, God says. Only when I'm dealing with weak people. It is perfected. It is fully revealed. Therefore, Paul's conclusion. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. I want that 110% of God's power showing here in my life. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am the weakest, then I am the strongest. That's what Paul had learned as he was constantly going to a new Nineveh and a new Nineveh and a new Nineveh. That when he felt inadequate, he was actually the strongest. So if you consider that Nineveh that God wants you to go to and you feel inadequate, that's great. Because that's exactly where you need to be. Because you won't go in your own power. You will pray and seek God and say, Okay, God, if you really want me to go, I'm going. My knees are knocking. My, my, mm, mm, the palms of my hands are sweaty and my mouth is dry. This is only going to work with you. And God says, I know. That's exactly where I need you to be. Let's go. And that's what Jonah did, and he went. There's one other thing, and that is a lot of times I think we feel alone. I hear that from a lot of you. You talk about that workplace. You talk about that uh, ball team you might be on, or whatever that group of, that circle of people that God's asking you to go to. A lot of times we feel very alone. I'm convinced Jonah felt pretty lonely when he walked through the gates of Nineveh and started preaching. I don't picture that he got a lot of people to go with him. Now, we don't know that, but I just have a hunch there weren't a lot of people who signed on to be part of his entourage as he went to Nineveh. And we're pretty convinced there weren't a lot of other believers waiting there to welcome him. I think a lot of us feel like Jonah. And part of the problem is when we feel alone and isolated, we're the only one. Satan uses that so we don't start. We don't go. We never speak the first time because we're convinced we're alone. There's a great story about that. The prophet Elijah. Elisha. First Kings 19. He felt alone. He had done everything he could to talk about God to his nation. He had even won miraculous victories. And they still were out to kill him. It hadn't worked. He had done everything he could. And so he finally stops in depression. And he says, I'm done. I'm done, God. God comes and has a little heart-to-heart with him. Says, what are you doing sitting here? 
And he says, I, I, I'm done. I'm the only one. I am alone. And then God says to him, no, you're not. God says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 more. You may not know them. You may think you're alone, but you're not. You're not alone. I have people around that you don't know about. We need to hear that lesson. Wherever you are and you think you're alone, I guarantee you, you're not. If in no other way, one of the ways you're not alone is God is already there working. He is already there. I want to read two verses quickly about the Holy Spirit, who is God here now on earth. One is in John 15, 26. When the, when the advocate comes, another name for the Holy Spirit, when the advocate comes, this is Jesus speaking, who I will send to you from the Father... The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about me. The Spirit is lifting up Jesus, even without you. You're not alone because the Spirit is drawing attention to Jesus, even among unbelievers. He's raising up that person, that name, that idea. So that he's noticed, so that people have to think about him. He is testifying to Jesus. He's already breaking the ground, tilling the soil, sowing the seed. That's part of what he's doing here. You see, he's working to convince people. The next chapter, John 16, 8, Jesus also says about this spirit, When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. This is such a critical verse we need to understand because so many of us in dealing with those who are far from God, we feel it is our task to convict them. You know, the New Testament says it's not our task. It's the Spirit's task. We need to just... Be that spokesperson, that seed sower, that whatever. It is the Spirit who is working on hearts. If we feel inadequate to change a heart, we should. It's not our job. And God knows it's not our job. He knows we can't do it. It's the Spirit's job to convict. But both of those verses teach us wherever you're going, you are not alone. The other thing, the other reason I say you're not alone is because God has other people there working as well. George already read this next passage. I won't read it again. It is that concept which Paul had seen happen is somebody's sowing, somebody's watering, somebody else is harvesting. God is giving the increase. And as I hear stories of people who were far from God and they finally find their way back to their heavenly father, they find their way to Jesus, invariably those stories link multiple people. Somebody said this. Somebody else did this. This happened and this person was there. They may not even know each other. 
But God, this master chess maker, master is moving these people, using this person to say a word, this person to sow a thought, this person to give an example. And only God sees that big picture. Any one of those may have felt like, I'm alone. I can't do this. God says, you're not doing it all. I got 7,000 more you don't even know about. And I'm using them. I'm using all of them. Trust me, just do your piece. Just sow that seed. Just give that example. Just make that comment. Just ask that question. That's all I need you to do. But do your part. That's what Jonah did. And that's what we need to do. God just needs us to go. To leave our safety and our security and our comfort in here with the Christians. And go. Just like Jonah. I don't know how God's going to use us. He will. We just need to go. And that's what I want us to be encouraged to do. And the message today is, if we go, we have a God who does the impossible. We don't have to be worried about what we can do. We have a God who does the impossible. If we'll just go. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We stand in awe of you for you are a God who does the impossible. We think there's no hope. You win. We think we're alone. We're not. We think a heart can't change, and it does. We think a pagan city would never repent, and they do. The Red Sea can't divide, and it does. A person far from you will never come home, but they do. Father, help us see, increase our faith. You can do the impossible. But like Jonah, you need us to go. May we be convicted, despite our fears and hesitations, convicted of our need to go to our Nineveh. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Let's please stand for our closing.